On this All Saints Day or All Saints Sunday, All Saints Day actually was November 1st, I want to tell you about an exercise that I was invited to go through a few weeks ago, and it really was very helpful to me and very meaningful. There was a colleague uh, who went to seminary, and he had gathered with several of us who graduated from the same seminary, and he took us through an exercise that he leads all of his high school students through. He's a teacher at a private Catholic high school, and he calls it Your Mount Rushmore. And what he does is he basically invites uh, all the students, and he was inviting us to do the same, to think of four who have shaped your faith in a significant way. And he gave us four guidelines, and these are the same guidelines that he gives to his students. The first one has to be a blood relative, someone from your family, someone related to you by blood who has shaped your faith in a significant way. The second one is someone who's not a blood relative. The third category does not have to be a person. It could be a book that you've read, it could be an experience that you've had, it could be a job that you've had, a particular organization that you've been involved with. So it's just uh, kind of open, it doesn't have to be a person. And then the fourth category is wide open. Anybody, anything, someone from the past, someone, a historical figure, um, you get to choose. So we spent some time reflecting, and he said, you know, every time he does this exercise, it's not easy, because he always comes up with new names and new people that could be on his Mount Rushmore. And I may tell you a little later who was on my Mount Rushmore. I'm kind of afraid to tell my family, because they might feel bad if I tell them who I picked. But, you know, as we come into this particular passage and narrative that we're in in Genesis today, we are in the midst of this series called Life is Messy. And I have to tell you that there really is no hero, once again, in this story. This Jacob story produces very few heroes, just a lot of mess. So you're not going to really find anybody, I don't think, that's going to be like a your Mount Rushmore person in this passage. Even though... This chapter is about the birth of the ones who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are really, really significant folks that feature all the way through the Bible. Because the 12 tribes, that's, that's part of the Israel story all the way through the Old Testament. And then you get to the 12, you've got the 12 disciples. And even when you get to the end of the story in Revelation, there's still the 12. And it's all about those 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Even so you're not going to find a lot of heroes in this story. So what's happening in this story? Jacob. Jacob now has not one wife, but two. He fell in love with and was smitten by Rachel. She was so beautiful, he didn't mind that he had to work seven years to earn the father giving his daughter to him as a wife. But then he's tricked, right? because Rachel's the younger, and her older sister had to marry first. So somehow, I don't know how veiled, how drunk they were on that wedding night, but somehow Leah is snuck in there, and that's his wife, so he has to work seven years more to get Rachel. He didn't mind, because he loved, the last verse we hear before our passage is this, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. All right, life is messy. Ready? So let's go to Genesis. You're invited to have your Bible open. 
We're at the end of chapter 29, picking it up at verse 31. We're going to go into chapter 32, verse 24. And let's pray as we prepare to listen to God's word. God, you are a God who speaks to your people, and there is a new creation. We want to hear you speaking to us, and we ask that by the power of your spirit, these words in scripture, my words, will come alive, and we will hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 29, verse 31, listen to God's word to you. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she named him Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear upon my knees and that I too may have children through her. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. By the way, mandrakes were a known aphrodisiac. Found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God heeded Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my hire because I gave my maid to my husband, so she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. 
Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good dowry. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Messy, messy, messy. If I were going to pick out a a central verse right there in that mess uh, that seems to be central to the narrative, it is when Rachel is screaming at Jacob, give me a son or I will die. Give me a child or I will die. Rachel seems to have it all because she's beautiful, she's drop-dead gorgeous, and she's loved. She is loved, but she does not have a child. She's barren. And so this whole narrative is caught up with her unhappiness and the things that she's doing to try to have a child. And she's doing everything she can, and she's got all this jealousy and all this rivalry, and so she is giving Jacob Bilhah. Poor Bilhah, these poor women. And then she's bargaining over the mandrakes, hoping that if she has this aphrodisiac, she will get pregnant. And none of that really is working for her. I think it's good to stop and to acknowledge the fact that barrenness was the worst kind of curse for a woman in that day. Because women really had no place in the culture. They had no role. They had no voice. They had no power. They had one purpose, and that was to have children. And not just any children, but a male. You'll notice I'm surprised they even mentioned Dinah. Dinah, Dinah's in there, but barely. She really doesn't matter that much. So there was a reason that there were a lot of fertility cults going on at that time because passing on to the next generation and having a male child was the main thing. So there's Rachel. Give me a child or I will die. And then poor Leah. Leah, who's known for being unlovely, who's known for being unloved and hated. If we could hear what Leah would scream, it would be, Give me the love of my husband, or I will die. Did you get that feeling in this narrative? That's all she wants. She wants Jacob to love her. Almost every son that she has, Reuben, surely now my husband will love me. Then she has Simeon. Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. Then she has Levi. Now this time my husband will be joined to me because I've borne him three sons. And then her very last son that she gives birth to, Zebulun, she says, now my husband will honor me. She didn't just want a man to take care of her, which every woman needed in that day. She didn't just want to have children and to have sons, which every woman wanted to have in that day. She wanted his love. And so we see her grasping also. Rachel is grasping to have a child, doing everything she can to have a child, and Leah is grasping, doing everything she can to get Jacob to love her. She's giving her maid, Zilpah, hoping that if she has more children, even through her handmaid, that Jacob will love her. She hires through her son's mandrakes 
for Jacob to come in and to be with her once again because she wants the love of her husband who actually loves Rachel more than he loves her. So we see this grasping. We see the grasping on the part of Rachel doing everything she can to have a child. We're seeing this grasping on the part of Leah doing everything she can because she wants the love of her husband. And if we stop and think about it, who is Jacob? Jacob is a grasper. You know, for men in that culture, what did they have to have? The best thing for them to have was the birthright, to be the eldest, for them to have the blessing of the father. And what did Jacob grasp for? He grasped for that birthright. He tricked Esau out of it. He grasped for the blessing. And then he's also grasping for Rachel. That was a thing he had to have. He was willing to work 14 years for Rachel, which when she was screaming at him, I'm sure he wondered why he had done all that. (laughs) I think it's, I I heard about um, a message that John Ortberg, he's the pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, and one Sunday he gave his message by video and he was on an exercise bike. And he's on this exercise bike, and he's exercising away, and the camera is on him, and he's talking about how my whole life, he said, is about chasing what I know will satisfy my soul. I am, I am doing everything I can to bring this one thing into my life that will bring me lasting contentment, and when I get it, I'll be happy. And as he's on this video, and he's on, well, he's in the video, he's on the treadmill, and he's talking about how when he was a kid, what it was was to get good grades, and then what it was so that he could get into a good college, and then what it was so that he could get the girl, and then when he had his home in this piddly little home, he wanted air conditioning, and then what it was was to get the job and the promotion and kids, and then when he had kids, what it was was to get the kids out of the house and to have... <laughs> the right vacation, and then to have enough money to retire, and then really to have enough money to never worry about money anymore. And he just talked about these things that were it, and how he was willing to do anything to work hard to get it, because I know, I just know, if I get it, it's going to make everything worthwhile. Now, my friend told me about this, who had been in worship that day, And it really made an impression on her, and she said, I'm wondering what your it is. What do you think will make you happy? And it was interesting. We were going for a walk, so we were talking this through about what it was, and it is now. I remember when I was a little girl, I had these calcium deposits on my teeth, these white spots, and I hated my teeth, and I hated the way I looked, and I I so envied everybody that had a beautiful smile. And I truly, as a little girl, would have given anything to have beautiful teeth. For me, that was it. And then as I got older, you know, it's like the one true love. And then I'm talking to this friend, we're walking, and she's saying, for me, it's always been being thin. I figured if I was thin, then that would be it. And I told her, yeah, you know, I've always thought if I had this, if I was at this particular weight, which is the weight I never am, then I will, that will be it. I will feel good about myself. And that's not it either. For Rachel, it wasn't being beautiful, and it wasn't being loved. She was beautiful. She was loved. But it was having children. Give me children or I will die. She does finally have a child. 
at the end of this story, Joseph. But the tragic irony is that she has a second child, and it's in giving birth to the second child, Benjamin, that she dies. She dies in childbirth. It is not it. And right before that happens to Rachel, Jacob's name is changed. And that's what's going on in this story. Jacob, who is the grasper, Jacob's doing everything he can to get it, pouring all of who he is into getting it. And then his name is changed to Israel, one who's not grasping, but one who's striving with God. That's the story that's going on here. Because if you look back through this narrative, there is a hero. There is a subject, the subject of the whole book of Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And so from the very first sentence to the last sentence in this story, you hear this. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Beautiful statement. The Lord saw. And at the end, God remembered Rachel. She was not forgotten. Very last sentence. The Lord opened. The Lord gave. The Lord adds. So all the way through, you have God as a subject, these really, really powerful statements about God which are things that Israel looks back to that we still look to constantly about who God is, the Lord sees, the Lord hears, the Lord opened her womb, the Lord has heard that I'm hated, the Lord saw her affliction, God has given, God has endowed, God remembered Rachel, God adds. I think it's fascinating how much we find barrenness in the biblical story. Abraham was married to Sarah, and Sarah was barren, not able to have children, but she did have Isaac. Isaac is married to Rebecca. Rebecca is barren. So here we go, on and on it goes, in these different kind of movements, from the judges to the kings. It's Hannah singing her heart out in the temple, praying to God. Why? She's barren. And then she has Samuel. And then we get all the way into the New Testament, and we have two stories, Elizabeth, who's too old to have kids, who has John the Baptist, and then Mary, who's too young and doesn't even have a husband, who has the Messiah. Why? What's the point? Why does this keep coming up? Why is this so central to the biblical narrative? Barrenness again and again and again. Because our grasping, we think that our grasping is what's going to give us it. And when we have it, then we will have what we need to be satisfied and completely happy. That will usher in the future. And we see in this passage the ugliness of slavery, don't we? Women really were slaves. And then these handmaidens are slaves. It's ugly. But the greatest ugliness that we see here that's hidden to us most times is this ugliness 
this captivity, this slavery to grasping, to being on that treadmill and going after it. And if only I have it, then I will be complete. Then I will be really happy. The real slavery is this grasping, which is why we see this transformation going on in Jacob the grasper. He doesn't remain Jacob the grasper. He becomes Israel, one who strives with, who's still striving, who's still using all of his gifts, all these great energies and gifts and talents God has given, but striving with God. It's interesting to me, a friend of mine who has gone through a painful journey with fertility, trying to get pregnant, she and her husband, and after years and years of trying and not getting pregnant, then they shifted gears and they went into adoption mode, trying to adopt. And now they've gone through all kinds of false starts on adoption, and that's been almost as painful, if not more, than trying to get pregnant with the fertility. It's been horrible. And for this particular couple, she commented that she really didn't feel like she could get involved in her faith community because she was waiting for a child. Because when she had a child, then she would be able to get more involved in her faith community. And interestingly enough, a bunch of people sought her out, and they had a small group from her faith community, and she said, oh my gosh, these are great people. And it was a gift to me to see that her it was shifting. Children are a gift, a treasure, as is marriage, family. But it's not it is it? So as you think about your Mount Rushmore, and who might go on your Mount Rushmore? For the church, for all saints, it's people, and I think of the people that I've chosen and the people that I would choose from among you, people that have helped me shift, make that shift, out of that desperate grasping for what I am so sure is it, to striving with God. Four words we're going to be spending time in this month, alignment, aligning our lives with who God is, belonging, knowing that everything comes from God, that we belong to God, God's taking care of us, bedrock, investing, pouring all of our energies into the things that last and thanksgiving, giving thanks to God. So people on my Mount Rushmore are the people that are helping me do that, live life in alignment, to realize and remember that I belong to God, God provides for me, investing in what lasts forever and giving thanks. Now, interesting, in all the sons that we heard about in this story, Leah begins to make the shift when her fourth son is named what? Do you remember? His name's Judah. Judah means this time, I will praise God. Guess who becomes the father of our Messiah, Jesus Christ? It's Judah. It's through Judah that Jesus is born. It's through Judah and Leah that we receive the Messiah who comes to transform us out of graspers, out of the slavery that we cannot stop, that treadmill of trying to get it on our own steam. And if we get it, we'll be happy. Jesus comes to set us free from that dead end, literal dead end, 
because God sees, God loves, God hears, God sees our captivity, hears our affliction, opens, adds, liberates in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our good news. That's why you are meant to be somebody's Mount Rushmore. We as the church are called and created to be that kind of Mount Rushmore, not presidents, not heroes, but people who are helping others wake up. We don't have to be on that treadmill, striving free to live this liberated life of alignment and belonging, bedrock, thanksgiving. Please pray with me. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we admit to you that we are pouring all of who we are so much time and energy, so sure that there, there is something that really will make us complete if we only have that thing, that love, that accomplishment. Thank you that you have come to set us free, that you invite us to come to you that we will never be thirsty, that we will never be hungry if we align ourselves and strive with you. You see, you know our deepest hunger, our deepest thirst. So come and set us free individually and come and set us free as your church. For we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.